This is the 4th of July weekend. I used to uh, live in Richmond, Virginia. I went to my first college there in Richmond. And uh, Richmond is a great city. If you've never been, it is, you can't live there and not feel like you're part of history. In fact, I lived just a block away from what's called Monument Avenue. And uh, there are uh, monuments, just huge monuments of Civil War characters. Now, it's funny because I moved from Richmond to Boston. And the funny thing was that down, you know, in the south, you see uh, Robert E. Lee and, and uh, Jeb Stewart. And I thought that's all who fought in the war. I didn't see anybody else. And then I move up to, uh, to Boston. All you see is, you know, Grant and company. And so uh, it was, I, it's just funny how that's still, uh, that's still happening there. But at any rate, there's so much history there. And one of the things that one of the places in Richmond is uh, St. John's Church. And something eventful happened there at St. John's Church. The uh, tension between the new colonies and Great Britain had already begun to um, surface. The Tea Party had happened in 1773 in December in Boston. And uh, the tension was mounting. And these leaders of our country were at an impasse of what to do and where to go and, and... exactly what action to take. And they sat in a room on March 23rd in 1775, a little over a year before the Declaration of Independence was signed on this memorial July 4th weekend. And they, they fought back and forth, as politicians will do, and they discussed action. Some people wanted to give in. Some people were okay with being taxed by those that were not elected. That was one of the major issues of that day. And there was one man who stood up, and he, he, with great passion, he did something that changed not only the course of indecision in that room that day, but changed the course of this country. And their plans were already in motion. They discussed, and they argued, and they debated And they already probably knew what direction they needed to go in, but they needed someone to come in and take it beyond the plans and stir up passion in that room. That man was Patrick Henry. And his words are printed on the front of your handout today, and they'll come up on the screen here. And he stood up and he said, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, and this has gone down into the history books in America, give me liberty or give me death. He drew a line in the sand that said, okay, we've talked and we've talked and we talked, but I for one am ready to give my life for the reality of what we might face, of probably what we will have to face. And if you read about the American Revolutionary War that began, it became a global war. It was not just a, a Britain against America. India got involved. France got involved. Spain got involved. The Dutch got involved. And it became a widespread ripple that you can trace back to one pebble coming into the water that said, give me liberty or take my life. That room and this nation in that moment needed someone to come and stir up the courage and stir up the passion that probably was already existing in that room. It took someone to come up with these words and take the strategy just beyond the playbook. It's like a great football team. 
You can have all the greatest plays in the book. You can have the greatest playbook for defense or offense. But it takes a coach that will stir up what's already on paper in a team that they will carry out the playbook to another degree. In fact, Vince Lombardi, probably the most quoted football coach in America, said this, coaches who can outline plays on a blackboard are a dime a dozen. The ones who win get inside their players, their hearts, their minds, their wills, their choices, their courage, their lack of courage, their fears, their inhibitions. The coach that can get inside their heart and say, look, we're going to be motivated and I'm going to stir you up. That's the coach that will win. We have finally come to the end of a long journey of this collection that we're calling Up. At this point, I expected applause to break out into the room. Yes, <laughs> don't even dare go there. It's been a long trek of you're just kind of coming in recently of we believe that God is taking us to a next level at this church. It's an exciting time. And throughout the last month or probably two months, we have prepped our minds and our hearts for what is to come. I won't go through that again, a major review of where we're at. If you want a major review, you can go to the website. In fact, I had lunch with someone that is uh, this week who's coming to our church, and I was really taken that she went back and listened to every single week because she said, I want to get in the boat and row with you guys. And uh, I've listened to every, every week. That was my wife. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> She's almost ready to jump in. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the need to be stirred up is huge. Because I believe that in this room and in every meeting room across this city, across this state, across this country, across this world, churches in, in Czech Republic, in Nicaragua, in Belize, in Germany, in America, in Chicago, in Sarasota, I believe that within the hearts of men and women and youth that follow Jesus, there lies a passion. Sometimes, as we know, though, that passion can grow dormant. It can grow cold. Even with God, who we are told in the scriptures changes not, who is, is as consistent and more than anything that we've experienced in this human life, we're told this interesting thing in Isaiah 42. Watch this. Even God stirs up within himself a passion, this God who is consistent. The Lord will march out. Like a mighty man, he's talking about against Babylon. And like a warrior, watch, he will stir up his own zeal, his own passion. And with a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. You see, when you look at a man like Patrick Henry and, and you read the words here of God himself, when zeal and passion are stirred, it sometimes can come from one person. And that one person can create a collective zeal. A, a, a Vince Lombardi can look at 50 young men with uniforms and shoulder pads and knee pads. And he can, that one single man can generate a collective passion. And I believe that if we think not only individually, but if we thought collectively, that if one of us, if five of us, if 10 of us 
could stir within ourselves the zeal of where we believe that God is taking us next, we could literally shake the world. And I'm not into cliches. I mean that literally. I believe that the next chapter that we are seeing and we are sensing could absolutely shake this city and the places that we arrive around the world. I believe that when you look at the mandates that are given to the church, one of the most critical ones comes from Hebrews chapter 10, a book in the New Testament. And we read this, and let us consider, I'm going to stop on those first three words. Listen, what the, what the, the writer of Hebrews of this letter is saying, let's think about it for a second. Let's consider. We don't use that term very often in everyday language. Let us consider. You know, what, what should we have for dinner? Oh, let us consider what's in the fridge, right? We, let's, well, let's think about it. Let's talk it out. Let's ponder. Let's have some contemplation. So when we come together, let's consider, think about how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another. Watch this. Like Emeril Agassi would say, let's kick it up another notch. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near as Jesus, we know that this life is not all there is. And we, because we know that there's a bookend on the end of this human existence, all the more, let's come together and encourage one another and stir one another up as a football team would go, let's get it. Let's get it done today. Let's bring it. And so I believe that in sitting in this room, we cannot underestimate the power of one person. Maybe it's you. One person that would say, I'm going for it. I am going for it. I'm not going to live my life status quo. As Patrick, with the same passion that a Patrick Henry would say, give me liberty or give me death. The same passion that a Martin Luther would say, I cannot and I will not recant. I stand here firm in what I believe. One person sitting in this room. I'm dreaming of 10 persons, 15 persons, 20 persons. I would love 100% of all of us, but I don't believe that that's possible. So let's keep it real and say just a few people. It can only take one to create an incredible stir. I've told you before, I was in uh, Boy Scouts, and uh, I was not the epitome of uh, a good scout. I was there. My brother went. I uh, often hid under his um, good behavior because mine wasn't. And um, I got tossed out of a couple of leadership positions after being in it for a few hours. And then um, <laughs> the scoutmaster's son, his name was Gary Bowman. Gary um, got on everybody's nerves because he was the perfect scout. And um, we did fun things to Gary. At least it seemed like fun then. It seems cruel now, but we did fun things to Gary. And there was there was good reason. I remember one day we were walking through the woods, and um, his dad, the scoutmaster, would say, "Whatever you do, don't step on any logs, because you never know what's under in the log, like you know beehives or maybe a snake or whatever." So all of us scouts knew that when you're hiking through the woods, you step over the log. You don't step on the log. Well, not Gary. Gary thought he was exempt from you know everything, and so. We're all, you know, filing, you know, single file in the, in the woods. And there's Gary, crunch, right on a log. And he stirred up the bees that were in that log. 
and everything went nuts. I mean, we were all getting stung, and I was just thinking, just that one person, I was going to say something else, (laughs) stirred up this chaos. It's not always positive when people stir up because you can be stirred up and you can stir up the wrong thing. That evening, by the way, we did fill up Gary's boots with toothpaste. And um, that was fun. Now, see, when I went on scout trips, I'm like, okay, now we're having fun. That five-mile hike, mm -mm, not getting it for me. But filling up Gary Bowman's boots with toothpaste, yes, memorable. When you think of leaders in this world like Adolf Hitler's, who was able to stir up a nation, it's an amazing thing. Because what I don't want you to do is underestimate the power of one person who can stir up a collective community for good or for bad. The scriptures tell us in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 28, a perverse man stirs up dissension. And a gossip separates close friends, a collection of friends. Mark chapter 15, Jesus was getting ready to be handed over. And Pilate, the the leader of the day, asked this question to the crowd. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over. But the chief priest had stirred up collectively the crowd to have Pilate to release Barabbas instead. In in Philippians, we see that the Apostle Paul was in in jail. And he says when he was in jail, he wrote these words. The former, uh, talking about a group of people preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. And so the point is that we can stir things up for good or for bad, but it doesn't take a lot of people to stir it up. See, you may be sitting there thinking, are you me? I'm not sure that my individual personal life would be enough to be able to stir up passion in others. My just one teeny small life, how could it have the ripple effect that could, that could impact something much larger than myself? As a picture of this, I don't know if you saw this on the news this week, that, you know, there are times when aircraft who are, that are trying to take, you know, have a lift off, off the runway, that they are, you know, sometimes blockaded by other planes, by other things that are going on the runway, by fo- something as large as fog or storms or snow, these major uh, hurdles for them to take off. But I don't know if you caught this news uh, broadcast this week, but I want you to take a look. Something small impeded the way of these takes off at nearly 170 miles an hour the other averages three miles an hour this is what happens when they meet jeffrey 102 we got a couple turtles uh storming the access road here off our right can we really use the word storming about a turtle the turtles <laughs> diamondback terrapins in this case were heading across one of jfk's main runways and onto a sandy spot to lay their eggs it's an annual event and it's been happening all week American 663, is the turtle in front of you? Uh, yeah, they're off to my right. There's two of them, and then there's another third one uh, kind of off our nose, about 100 yards. And so the Great Turtle Roundup was underway. 
Car 97, let me know uh, more turtles on the runway. Advise when you're ready for to go get them. Car 97 is at Kilo Bravo and four left, and I am ready to enter the runway, sir. Car 97, did you, uh, you, uh was the turtle removed? Hey, sir, sir, turtle removed and clear four left. Today, there were so many wandering turtles, over a hundred of them, that the airport had to close one runway, leading to delays. JetBlue's official statement, we hope for faster animals next time. Lisa Stark, ABC News, Washington. So, you know, you may be sitting here thinking, you know, I'm just a turtle. I'm just a snail. Look at the impact of what happened. I want to, to paint a picture in your mind of a culture of impactors, a culture of those that would get stirred up enough. Now, being stirred up has nothing to do with a pep talk. Today is not a pep talk because I believe that pep talks fade away. I believe that Vince Lombardi, when he gave those, those uh, soldiers in the locker room, those football players, when he began to motivate them, he knew their inside already. He, he confessed that. But he had a game plan to back it up so that when they got onto the field, they had a plan in action. So they weren't just, let's go, let's go, let's go with no plan. And I believe that when the, the scriptures tell us as a New Testament church that we should be, that we consider ways to stir one another up, I believe that there are ways that are right beneath our noses that if we say, you know what, that's enough to stir me up. I don't want to fabricate zeal today because it will die probably by the time you get to your car. What I want to do today is bring the reasons and the reality of the things that may have grown dormant in your life and mine and the life of the church that are very much lying right in, in our touch and in our reach. And maybe one of these you would say, that's enough for me to, to just to raise my passion. The first one, current realities. I love it when our youth, or anybody for that matter, goes into an impoverished country for the first time. If you've never experienced it, the first five minutes will rock your world. Every time I've, I've been in many different countries and many different impoverished environments and it never fails that the minute I walk on the plane, there's something in my heart, my spirit, my inner person that says, oh yeah, oh yeah. The pictures don't capture the smells. The images don't capture the children and the sound of their laughter in the midst of the most dreaded and dire environments. And when you're there in person, there is a reality that no one will have to turn to you and say, okay, let's get pumped up because you're living in the reality of that. Some realities are more subtle. And I wish at times that God had this miraculous way of saying, look at that. Because when we see the impoverished, I believe that that's so obvious and so tangible. 
and so touchable. It doesn't take a great level of spirituality or intelligence to even see it. It's right in front of us. And yet, there are some times that poverty is in front of us and we can't see it. My guess is that there is great poverty in the cul-de-sac of your neighborhood. But because it's dressed with hedges and a three-tube house, that we fail to see the poverty that the image wouldn't match with what we think of as poverty. Jesus is hanging out one day. He sends the, the other guys into town to grab some grub. And they're, they're, and they're away. And so he's alone. And he meets this woman, as many of you know the story. First of all, it wasn't taboo for a man to sit that close and to come in contact with a woman in that culture. And yet he did. It wasn't appropriate for in his uh, religion to sit with not only a woman, but to sit with a Samaritan woman. Because as a Jewish man, he was in their culture, they were raised to think of Samaritans as lesser people, marginalized, not quite as human as the rest of us. And there was Jesus there. The guys come back with the grub and they walk up. And I think there's something so powerful and subtle in what we read in the scriptures. In John chapter 4, just then, as Jesus has been having this conversation with this woman, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. Any of us would say, um, what's up? How come? I thought we, that, something we would have said. But no one asked, what do you want? No one asked, why are you talking to her? You see, poverty can be right in the, under our nose, right next door in our neighborhoods. And like the disciples, because we miss it, because it doesn't look like what poverty we have in our mind, we can not even ask, what do you want? What are you hungry for? In this case with this woman, what are you thirsty for? How can God meet the need that you have? And so Jesus, it stirred him up to stir his disciples up. And he said these words, do you guys not say four months more and then the harvest? That was an, a term that farmers used back in those days. He says, I tell you, open your eyes. The reasons to get stirred up are right in your own backyard. He said, look, I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. Look, boys, look at it. And they're probably like, I'm looking, I'm looking, I don't see it. Looks like regular people, looks like a regular a lady standing there. And I can, Jesus, I can hear Jesus say, no, look deeper. Look harder. Look in their eyes. Look in their conversations. Look in the things they buy. Look at the things they don't talk about. Look at the things they want to talk about. Look deep. Because the harvest is ripe. He was trying to stir up into them. Perhaps things that we don't see Globally speaking, look at these facts, these realities, these reasons for the church to be stirred up. Every day, almost 16,000 children die for hunger-related causes. That's one child every five seconds. Is that enough for us to get stirred? 
Another figure in 2008 right here in America, 17 million households, 14.6% of households. That's approximately one in seven were food insecure, the highest number ever recorded in the United States. Let's bring it to our own city. Do you know that there are nearly 1,000 homeless children living right here in Sarasota? Do you recognize that that an average child, when they go to kindergarten, they call them 1,000-book childs because they've basically read 1,000 books before they come to kindergarten. Did you realize that in Sarasota, there are many children that go to kindergarten and they're 10-book children right here? And Jesus would say, look, open your eyes. You can... God calls us around the world, but he calls us right out those doors, right in that parking lot, right to the corner of McIntosh and Ashton, and said, perhaps you could go feed dinners to these folks who are learning to read. Perhaps you could invite these children to tutor them and get to know them so that they could see Christ in your life if they're not seeing it anyone else and come up close to kids just because they don't know how to read. According to the AmericanChurch.org, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, 40% of their population attends evangelical churches. In Sarasota, right here in our own town, the percentage of people in our city, roughly over 300,000, I think, that, that attend, that are in part of a community, part of, not just going to church, but part of a community that we enjoy, 12%. 12%. Jesus would say, is this reason enough? Now let's take it to our own four walls. George Barna said this, while it is alarming to discover that born-again Christians are more likely than others to experience a divorce, the Christian rate of divorce is higher than agnostics and atheists. That pattern has been in place for quite some time, but even more disturbing perhaps is that when those individuals experience a divorce, many of them feel their community of faith provides rejection rather than support or healing. You see, the thing that breaks my heart is to wonder if God had a Facebook account. And that he would put the pictures for us that would tug at our heart, that were obvious and like, wow, poverty, that alone should stir us enough to be active, to engage, to surrender, to sacrifice. That alone should be enough. But what if that Jesus somehow could put on a Facebook account another picture of poverty? A child without a dad who will never know a dad. But not only that picture, 40 men standing in this room to the side looking on, not willing or courageous or sacrificial to get close enough to that fatherless child and to see the distance between us, the church, and those young children who need a man in their life. And I wonder if Jesus would call heaven around to his computer and say, look, that's also poverty. And stir us up. Not that there's a fatherless child, but that there's a church standing in the margin, looking on and knowing it and not being stirred up enough. That, my friends, 
is poverty. Do we recognize that in, within the church and most likely within this room that 50% of all Christians are addicted to pornography in one way or the other? Chuck Swindoll, seasoned pastor, been in the game so many years, writes these words. The most recent studies available suggest that one out of every two people, one out of every two people, that's 50% of the people sitting in our pews in our churches are looking at and or could be addicted to Internet pornography. Truth be told, that statistic could even be higher. It's ruining our marriages. It's destroying our relationships. It's harming youth. It's hurting the body of Christ. And most people who are involved in this, if you said, would you like out of it? Yes, I would like out of it. And that's why Jesus said, go. That's why Jesus said, look, there are men and women that are sitting maybe right next to you in the pew. One pastor didn't believe this statistic. And so he, he took a poll, a secret poll of his congregation. And he said, I don't, but really one out of every two, really? And he took a poll, 50%. And he proved that in his church, it was different. And that 50% was wrong. It was 61%. And so I look over the shoulder of Jesus with all of heaven. And he's saying, come over. Let me show you a picture of poverty. And he shows us a child in Nicaragua. And our hearts are broken. And yet then the next picture comes up. And it's a house that looks like mine at the end of a cul-de-sac that looks like mine. And you can feel all of heaven going, I think you got the wrong image. He said, let me take you inside the doors. And there's a wife laying in her bed. And there are three children. There are four children laying in their bed sound asleep. And I'm seeing this image of a man you can see the back of his head sitting in the glow of the computer alone in his office. And Jesus said, look around his shoulder and they look. Oh. The scripture says, young men, be taught by old men. Young women, be taught by older women. And there are those of us in the faith that have been able to say no to levels of darkness. Not that we're perfect, but those that can say, would you like a hand up? Because Jesus was talking to a woman and he said, let me get down in your life a little bit. I'm not going to be afraid. Why don't you go grab your husband? Well, I've had many husbands. I know it. Can we talk about that? Can I talk to you about you're probably thirsty on the inside. You're like, you're absolutely impoverished. And Jesus said, I can make a difference in your life. And don't we realize that what the word of God is doing is to stir ourselves up in this room that there are people across the globe, but I promise you that there are people sitting in this room that you could put your arm around and say, can I help you out of that?
Can we get stirred up about that? Because there are desperate people, although they have nice shirts and nice pants on like I do, sitting right beside you. Current reality is enough to get stirred up. Second, holy discontent. It's not enough to be disturbed by status quo. But I believe that status quo, we come from many different places. I believe that 360 is like a blended family, including myself. We come from all different walks of life. We come from all different types of church experiences, all types of some different faith experiences, some from non-church experiences, never been in church before. But many of us have had, in some chapter of our life, a train wreck in our spiritual experience, a church train wreck. And somewhere deep within us, we said, I can't, I just can't live like Patrick Henry said. I just can't live the rest of this railroad like this. And I don't want to be status quo, and I don't want to be a status quo Christian. But, and something happens and it causes us to take a step. But if we don't turn that distaste for status quo into holy discontent that stirs up passion to say, then therefore I'm going to do something about it and I'm going to be involved in discipleship. I'm going to be involved in a small circle community or mid-circle community. I'm going to be involved in a, in a, in a, in a, um, and sacrificial living and sacrificial giving and sacrificial serving. I'm going to go next step. I'm going to be beyond that. Then what happens is what happens in so many of us that that distaste for status quo because we don't act on it with passion because it doesn't stir. We haven't stirred it up enough to be a holy discontent that said, "Mm, I'm going to do something about it. That level of being stirred up, what happens is that we become bitter we become frozen and we, become, we can become apathetic. I know. You're looking at one. For years after a major tra- church train wreck, I'm like, you know what? I know I can't go on this rail, but I've pretty much had it with church. And I'm just, I'll go. I'll sing the songs. I'll listen to the preaching. I'll put an envelope in the box. I'll do all that. But don't ask me for anything else. How many people? would say in their own hearts, yeah, I know that. I believe that God created you for more. I believe that God created to stir up in you a holy discontent so that you far surpass just the distaste for status quo and actual action. Moses came along. He grew up as a privileged child in a palace. But at one point in his life, He saw that the the people with whom he grew up with were treating his own people, his own nationality, in such a way that he couldn't stomach anymore what he was seeing. In Exodus chapter 2, we read this beginning of Moses' journey. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and he watched them in hard labor. I don't think we can really grasp That little phrase, by the way, the sweat, the hunger, the tears, the blood on the knuckles, all the things that you just can't get from words. And he saw an Egyptian, that was the country where they were being enslaved. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. I also believe that we cannot um, 
grasp that phrase. What that means, it was probably a piece of leather and the guy was getting beat to an inch of his life. And something snapped in Moses to a point of holy discontent that I am not recommending in this room. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Go likewise. Have a great week. I'll see you next time. Yeah. For various reasons, like some of us, Moses said, I'm out of here. Not one year, he went and he began to herd sheep, herd cattle. Not two years, not one decade, not 10 years, not 20 years, not 30 years, 40 years. Stephen, who became the first martyr of the church, is recording this story, by the way, in Acts chapter 7. I believe in verse 23, he says these words, And Moses settled. He settled for 40 years. I'm saying to you that I believe that even when Moses was out there for four decades on the backside of a desert, herding and shepherding and all that stuff, I believe that still within his heart, it was like, ah. I can't, I can't live with myself. It's still going on. It's still going on. But I'm not going to do anything about it. But I would propose to you that that discontent still lied in his heart. And then God came along and he did something. He touched the very nerve of discontent in Moses' heart. In verse 7 of chapter 3, God arrived in this burning bush as we know. And, and, God, and Moses came up and, and he, God said, you're, you're on holy ground. I want you to know that you're before the almighty God. And in verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Wow, you've seen it? Can you imagine the connection at that point? That Moses would be like, pick me, pick me, pick me. Moses, yeah, well, that's why I killed the guy. That's why I had so much holy discontent that I did something of extreme action. And God would say, I'm God. I already knew that. That's why I just told you I have seen the oppression of my people. Do you know why I believe that there are men like Ryan Jasper who lead our young people into environments like we've just seen? I don't believe that's just because there's something in him that has a distaste and a, a, dis, a favor for images. But I believe that God has said, I've seen it too. And the mixture of our holy discontent and the stirring of the Holy Spirit coming together allows us to go. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, just like you, Moses. And I am concerned about their suffering, just like you, Moses. And so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And so now, now my son, Moses, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of the Israelites, out of Egypt. If you have been discontent, 
I want you to know that God is more discontent than you are. But we have to stir up within ourselves a holy discontent that will drive us to action. Make sense? There are realities and reasons. There's holy discontent. And there's what I want to call today, coining a phrase from a book I'm reading by Will Mancining, an apostolic esprit. And you're thinking, I'm sorry, did you say Sprite? Or what is that? Uh, (laughs) An apostolic passion. And what I mean by that is that we have been handed. And in your hand, I believe there is an invisible baton. You didn't pick it up intentionally if you were a follower of Jesus. But when you became a follower of Christ, God opened your hand and said, Welcome to the legacy. Welcome to your heritage. About once a year, I do this illustration, and I'm going to do it again for those of you that have seen it probably two or three times. Dave, you want to give me a hand, everybody? I'm going to bring this table up. I have sitting on my desk at home several items that are as simple as a block of wood. One of those items that sits on my desk every day is a red piece of wood. And I have this because this illustration for me is to appreciate the fact that before us, we are told that there are men and women that have come before us like a Martin Luther who was ready to give his life. We're told in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews that there were men and women who gave their lives even to death, who had parts of their body sewn, sawn off. They were fed to wild animals. There were men like John Wesley who rode thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. There were people like a Hudson Taylor who went into the nation of China and said, I'll learn the language. I'll do whatever it takes. He cut his hair like the Chinese people. He wore the Chinese clothing. He said, whatever it takes, I'll do it. There were people like uh, uh, Adoniah Judson. There were people that went into different countries. There were people who went before us who were willing to give everything that they had. And we are part of this great heritage. But we have to realize that somewhere on the line, because we don't know where the rest of this goes, how many generations will follow after us. We've seen a generation stand this morning who've had enough reality and a reason to be stirred up to holy discontent that will say, I'll go even if it's my first time. And let's say these generations come after us, and let's say that's us right there. When I look at this picture of everybody that's come before us, and when I've done this illustration before, I've had three tables, but I was lazy, so I only had one today, (laughs) so that you can see and appreciate the fact that when you said yes to Christ, you said yes to that. You said, I will then take the torch and I believe that we should be stirred because other men and women have given their lives 
for what God has put in our generation right now. One shot, one chance, one life, that's it. Nobody comes back and says, you know what? Kind of was apathetic there. Think I'd like to take another shot at it. Not if you're a Christian and you believe the Bible doesn't happen, not coming back. You've got one life, one shot. And so every generation passes from the next to the next to the next unless you don't carry the torch. And what happens to these? This sits on my desk. And I look at it every day. And I think of these words in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I believe that invisibly, because these witnesses are invisible, wouldn't it be cool for just five seconds to see them? Jesus is saying, you're surrounded by these guys. You're surrounded by these witnesses, by the Daniels of the world, by the Joshuas of the world. You're surrounded. You can't see them. But stir up your hearts and recognize that in your hand, even though you may not be able to see it, there is a baton. Run, 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 run. Am I getting you stirred up enough? I'm getting sweaty up here. <laughs> Fourth, I believe that some clear picture of vision will stir us up. How many of you have children that are on a trip? We go to Orlando. It's our one-stop destination for every vacation we've ever taken for eight years. And it's just about the time we pull out of the driveway and they say, how far? You know, how many more miles? Now they can do miles. How many more miles? And we lie just like you do. Oh, it's just about 10. Hang in there. There's a mile I spoke to somebody that said that uh, they, they um, had a 100-mile party. And that wouldn't work too well with Orlando. But they were driving up to North Dakota. And every 100 miles, they tell the kids, hey, here's something to look forward to. When we get to 100 miles, we're going to give... Uh, that was your idea, by the way, wasn't it? Yes. I think somebody told me. Yeah. Susan Nation. Come on up and share about the 100-mile party. No, okay. Uh, a 100-mile party to give them something to look forward to. As Christians, we have to. Listen. If we're going to consider how to stir each other up in love and good works, in my mind, it is clear as day. It's clear as the nose on my face. I see a culture of disciple makers. I see it. I see one man helping another, one woman helping another, one person getting into the lives of other people. I see a community that cares enough that we just won't serve but will invest. I see a culture that can impact the world, not just on one-time events, but over and over and over. I see a church that can tutor children. I can see a church that will go into the lives of children that don't have a dad. They'll say, come on, let's go kayaking, let's go horseback riding, so at least I can love you and hopefully share the, the love of Jesus Christ. There has to be a clear picture in your mind or we will grow apathetic. 
when I was in school, there was a great friend I had who was from Korea, Joel Ahn. Joel was very short. He had very thick glasses. He was an amazing piano player. And one day, uh, Joel was the most um, structured person I knew he, to the point of austerity and disciplined. He slept in my apartment one, one time, and I said, well, hey, man, you can grab the couch. He didn't want the couch. He wanted the floor. I had hardwood floors, no carpet. And I said, well, here, man, at least take a, you know, a, a pillow. He said, no, just his English was very broken. He said, no, just phone book. I'm like, okay, knock yourself out. So I gave him a yellow page phone book. That was his pillow because that's what he was used to. One day, Joel invited me to his church. I had my own church. He had his own church, but they were having this special Sunday night event. And so he invited me to this Sunday night event. It was in Kentucky. It was in uh, like uh, February. It was just, just bone cold. I mean, like in, in the you know, 20s, maybe the teens. And it got, because it was winter, it had already turned dark. And if you can imagine, if you know this city east of uh, 75 on Clark Road, you know where it's a two-lane road, about 55 miles an hour, that's what it was like. Only it was a, probably about 20 miles. And I remember Joel being in front of me. And I don't know how to say this appropriately in public, but his backside never hit that, that bicycle seat. And I can imagine just seeing his little image in front of me bobbing up and down, like this, freezing cold. You know, stuff was running out my nose, but it was freezing onto my upper lip. And occasionally, Joel would take, you know, one nostril and cover up and just turn his head and go, like that. Whoa, there it goes. And I knew I was scared to lose him because he, he never looked back. And other than do that, I mean, he never looked back and say, how's it going back there, Steve? Never. And all I could think of was a warm church. That's the only thing that drove me. The picture of being off this stupid road with cars. Wow. Wow. You know, and you got that much, you know, trying to stay you know, on the white line. I'm like, why, why, why? And the thing that overcame me in fear was the ride back. (laughs) We literally got at the church. I got off my bike like this, no joke, and got off my bike and went down immediately. My legs, and I said, you go on in, man. I'm uh, going to get ready for church out here. Truth be known, I couldn't walk. If you've been to church for a long time, you know sometimes we can do this Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. Oh, man, why am I doing this? Ah, forget it. Because there's got to be a clear image of what God can do past the status quo and the image that you already have in your mind. I'm beginning to see that image. It's becoming real in the lives of some men and women in this church. Mark my word, and I don't say it very often, mark my word. One year from now, this culture will turn your life upside down in this room. Get ready. Finally, 
I want to say the final thing that can stir us up is sitting right here. It's the greatest asset we have. It's each other. Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. He was talking about, he happened to be talking about financial giving, but there's something deeper he's talking to. And he says these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now it is superfluous for me to write you about the ministry for the saints. He's talking about giving. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, another region, saying that Achaia, their region, has, has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. You see, when I hear these guys up on the platform today, when I hear Ann say, you know, I've just, I've wanted to go. And I've been here in this church for a year and a half and it's changed my life. Woo! My stirrup level just gets a little, the RPM spin a little faster. When I know that a group will be down tomorrow night mixing and mingling with others, woo! I get stirred up. When I see one man pour his life into another and see transformation like I've never seen before right in front of her eyes. There's probably a Hebrew word for in the Bible somewhere. (laughs) And then I think one more time in Hebrews chapter 10. And let us consider how to stir one another up. There's enough reality right around us. There's enough broken hearts right in this room. In this day and age, through airplanes, an eight-hour trip, a four-hour trip, there's enough reasons right for that. We should have enough holy discontent to put us into action. There should be enough in us. There should be enough that we know that we are holding a baton that should stir us up. There should be enough in this room a vision of what things could look like. And there should be enough of us that can encourage one another. Would one of those five reasons be enough to stir you up? Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were signers of the Declaration of Independence. After that, as politicians will do, they became rivals, fierce rivals. John Adams was elected president. Thomas Jefferson... uh, And he then, and Adam's second term, ran against one another. And you can imagine that you think it's fierce now, it was fierce back then in any political race. Jefferson beat him out. Jefferson had two terms. After Jefferson's term, they became great friends. They were determined to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And they stirred one another up because they were the founding fathers of that paper and their names were on that. And they would say, I'm going to outlive you and I'm going to live to the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. I'm going to outlive you. On the afternoon of 1826, the 50th anniversary on July 4th, 1826, 50 years to the day of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. John Adams sat up in his bed knowing that he was going to die any moment. And he said, Jefferson survives. What he didn't know, and then he died. What he didn't know was that Jefferson had died about three hours earlier. On the day, 50th anniversary.
They stirred one another up enough to keep life going, and we can too. Don't give up. Don't give up. Let God stir up in us a passion that will rock this world. Let's pray. Oh God, we are here, and so are you. Father, thank you, God, that we have seen today in your world in your word that you yourself stir up your own zeal. That you yourself who change that never changes. I have moments where the holy discontent, the reasons are too much. God, we simply pray today for your own people, for our own hearts, that if we have grown cold, that you would stir in us a passion that is beyond, that is way beyond what we have right now. Awaken in us, God, we ask. Awaken in us, God, a passion that will make you proud. A passion that you would want to show an image to, to all of heaven. Look at this. Look at this church. And now they've got passion. Oh, God, stir us, God. Stir us, God.